From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, a managing director here at HPS. And today I have the pleasure to interview a good friend of mine, Dan Cox. Dan is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the founder and director of the Survey Center on American Life. He's here to discuss his recent American Perspective survey, Conspiracy Theories, Misinformation, COVID-19, and the 2020 election. Dan, thanks for joining us on HPS Insights. Yeah, delighted to be here. Um, we have a lot to talk about, Dan. I, I spent hours last night reading through your report again and I have way too many questions for the time we have, but before I jump into all that, tell us a little bit about your work at AEI and, and the work of the Survey Center on American Life. Sure, yeah, we're, we're relatively new on the scene. So we officially launched uh, just about a month and a half ago, uh, but it's work I've been doing in one form or other my entire career. So starting at the Pew Research Center, then going and co-founding a Public Religion Research Institute, which is now PRI, and then coming to AI a couple of years ago and starting this new center. And sort of the, the thread that connects all that work is, is really conducting you know, high quality public opinion research to help people make sense of this really complicated world we live in. And so uh, what we're doing at the survey centers, we're, we're tackling some of the, these big important questions that relate to the way Americans live their lives. Um, and we really wanna get a, a good sense of um, understanding how people are living their lives, sort of getting on the ground experiences. And a lot of pollsters uh, tend to ask the public questions about topics they haven't really thought much about, and, and that can be valuable, mm -hmm. uh, but we really wanna ask questions of, of respondents that they actually, things that they care about. Um, so the, you know, you know the, the, the job situation, that what's going on in their community, in their neighborhood, what's going on in their family and their personal lives, we did a poll earlier this year on the politics of dating. So people trying to get a sense of how much politics was sort of interceding and shaping the dating decisions and romantic decisions. And so that's the kind of thing that, that we do. And it's a little bit different than you may see from, from other public polling outfits. And what we do uh, and the sort of function we serve is not that dissimilar to places like the Pew Research Center or Gallup. And it's it's trying to, again, explain what's going on, uh, but it's not just producing facts, it's, it's explaining them. So, you know, when I get a call from a journalist or reporter and th there's a, um, you know, another, I would say our audience includes journalists, but also public policymakers and nonprofit and business leaders as well. And we really wanna help them understand not just what the number is, but why we see what we do. And, and we're really service oriented in that way. And our goal is to help reporters and others not understand not only what is going on in American households around the country, but, but why. Right. And if I may say, I assume what's changing, and we're going to talk about conspiracy theories um, and the importance they are now having in our American life. But I think if we did this podcast five years ago, that wouldn't be true. You weren't, we weren't all heading into a Thanksgiving where we discuss you know, election fraud and rigged elections and whatever we heard from Giuliani's crazy press conference the other day about Hugo Chavez. But this is literally becoming a very real 
part of, of American life and household discussions. And in my opinion, they're, they're starting to undermine faith in our elections and democracy. So maybe let me start there. Why, in your view or from your research, are so many people gravitating to these conspiracy theories that, that seem to be so easily debunked? Yeah, so we conducted a poll not too long ago that looked at conspiracies and misinformation. And it's important to remember that these kind of things have been going on for a long, long time. So, you know, there have been folks who are trafficking and this kind of stuff, uh, whether it's birtherism, you know, Obama was not born in the U.S. And it goes, there's a long history when, when you mm -hmm. think about politics and public health. But what's, what's different now is that you have what I would say is, is fairly large and reputable institutions kind of mainstreaming a lot of these things. Uh, the president of the United States, uh, the Republican Party, you know, sort of saying, oh, yeah, there's there's a massive election fraud and Trump really won coming from the, you know, the 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 RNC, uh, the Republican National Committee. And that that's new. That, like, that is something that we haven't seen. You know, these things kind of operated on the fringes of the Internet, places like 4chan and 8chan and Reddit and these other places where you know, they serve as sort of fact-free environments. But, but now I think what you're having is people who are distrusting of, of institutions, whether it's civic institutions, political institutions, the media particularly, and they're saying, well, you know, if I um, can't trust these sort of more traditional sources of information, where am I gonna get my news and information about politics and public life? Well, um, I'm, not, I'm not gonna rely, perhaps on the crazy email from my uncle, but I'm gonna go to these sites, which already are sort of, set up to, to provide me with the information that I want, these sort of social networking sites, whether it's Facebook or YouTube um, and even Twitter. Right. It strikes me that that's a little, um, if, I, if this makes sense, a little chicken in the egg, right? Uh, people are not trusting media. And so digging deeper into these conspiracy theories, but then it feels like media turns around and covers these conspiracy theories, which then just further fuels the conspiracy theories. Um, help us un unpack that. Is that what you're finding as well? Yeah, well, we, we've seen a really precipitous decline in public trust in a variety of institutions, government, media, Congress, uh, you know, even the military to some extent. And that's sort of, we've seen a sort of a long drop since the 70s and then there's been some dips in the 80s and 90s too. So we're at historic lows. Uh, and some of this has been purposeful, right? Like the, a lot of more Republican and conservative politicians have purposefully um, attacked the media when it's been critical. And I think there are um, some valid criticisms that you can make of the media and right. the way it does, particularly covers politics. Uh, but I think that some of this has been self-serving and you, and you see a lot of that. And when we looked at our conspiracy work, uh, one of the things we saw was that while it is more likely to manifest on the right than the left, it's on both sides. So we asked this question about whether right. people uh, believe that that Russian President Vladimir Putin had like dirt on Donald Trump. And the majority of Democrats agreed that that despite being no evidence for this, that this was something that was true. And then for Republicans, there's a you know there's a variety of, of um, more sort of mainstream uh, conspiracy theories that Trump has trafficked in that are believed. And one of them is like uh, voter fraud and electoral fraud. Uh, but again, Trump is not the first person to, to make these claims, the sort of like, like the 
claims of, of electoral fraud have been pretty prominent um, in, a, in, a, in the sort of conservative uh, side of politics for a while. Yeah, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on Trump. I'm, I'm personally ready to turn the page. But um, the big thing there is he does seem to be the first president, and that's had a huge influence. And I'm more curious than your take of whether that can be reversed. You've seen Biden try to take a much more serious approach. Um, he Candidates on the left could easily, like you said, kind of gin up their own conspiracy theories about things. And I think Biden's trying to play it very responsibly, in my opinion. Is that going to be effective at all to kind of reverse some of these beliefs? I mean, I, he's not going to be able to do it alone, for sure. And, and one of it, and, and I think it's something that my colleagues, many of my colleagues at AI are, are really interested in, is like revitalizing uh, institutions, right? Like we've got to right. build back trust. We've got to build back social capital. Uh, we we need we need a shared reality to get anything done. And and so like that's really to me one of the scariest things is that Trump has, uh, you know, his in his whole career, his whole life, he's created this this sort of unique reality bubble for himself where facts can't penetrate, and he sort of brought that to the GOP in a way that I think's been been really problematic uh, and challenging for our political system. And so, you know, you've seen in certain quarters of the Republican Party, people pushing back on that, sort of saying, no, this is ridiculous, right. this is false. Um, you know, these, these things that, that Trump's saying are, are not backed up by the evidence at all. Uh, and we'll, we'll sort of see in a post-Trump world um, what happens, but, you know, there's talk about Trump wanting to, you know, possibly stand there running for 2024. And I, you know, I'll, I share your desire to like be done just talking about Trump all the time, but I think like he's going to try to keep himself as part of the conversation. And I, you know, I for one was um, surprised and perhaps I've been a little naive about how much of the Republican establishment is not at this point really said, so said, you know, we're done, right? You, you know, we need to move on. We, right. you know, Biden won a free and fair election, um, but we're just not seeing that. Uh, there's only a few, I would say, establishment Republican figures that are are really saying, yeah, Biden is president-elect. Um, you know, we need to sort of move on and, and have an orderly transition. Yeah, and at least as of this recording, hopefully we're we're starting to see that change a little bit. With um, I saw Lamar Alexander came out today. Um, we're recording on Friday, and Tucker Carlson last night. Um, it's really quite astonishing to see Tucker Carlson pushing back on Giuliani and Powell's press conference. But um, I hope I'm not naive that this is this is starting to turn. Um, before we take a break, I'm wondering if you can, uh, or hopefully you can shed a little bit of light on who are these conspiracists? Is it is it everybody from all? demographics and age groups and education groups, or is it a growing or particular set of Americans that gravitate towards these on both sides of the aisle? Yeah, I think, you know, historically, it's been people with less formal years of education, people who are more civically and socially disengaged, kind of people who are themselves operating at more of the margins of society. Um, but on some of this stuff, we, we've seen that you know, education doesn't really actually play a huge role. 
particularly when we're talking about political conspiracies. So highly educated Republicans um, are not less likely to believe uh, Obama was born um, outside the US than lower educated Republicans. They're, they're, they're sort of have that belief similarly and it's because it's politically motivated and it's the sort of their ideological commitments that really are driving this stuff. Um, and we see that, see that a lot. And one of the things that you know, we've looked at, at a lot is this idea of uh, sort of reinforcing mechanisms. So how do the people around us, our, our sort of immediate social environment influence our political attitudes? And a, a lot of us live in um, sort of political echo chambers in our immediate life, not even with the media we're consuming, but in our personal lives, most of the people that we know and spend time with have politics, have political views that reflect our own. And that creates an environment where it's much more difficult uh, to refute this stuff because you're not hearing, you're only hearing one side. So you're not hearing someone saying, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Um, and so that's something that I think we're really aware of. And this happens on both the left and the right, this kind of political self-sorting where we sort of gravitate towards people um, right. share our political predispositions. And that's, this is something that's increasing, right? We've always been socially segregated along lines of race and class and religion. Um, but politics is something that I think is moving in the opposite direction where while the rest of them were becoming sort of more integrated, more sort of diverse, um, politics were actually moving in the opposite direction, becoming sort of more stratified, more uh, uh, sort of self-selecting in these sort of homogeneous clusters. And that's happening with just friends, but also um, who we end up marrying too. Right. Um, I did promise to ask, I guess the place where that still gets uh, mixed up a little bit is around the Thanksgiving. <laughs> dinner table as folks uh, maybe don't go home this year, but join their proverbial crazy uncle or something on, on Zoom. Any advice for uh, debunking conspiracies that folks hear over the holidays? Well, one of the great things about uh, having a more diverse political network is that we're much more open to hearing the other side. And that's really, really important. Uh, we can understand where they're coming from, even if we don't agree it provides a, a sense of like political legitimacy. So if my side loses, but I can understand the motivations and desires and, and, and interests of people who with different political views, I'm much more willing to accept these kind of, from my, from my side, like a poor political outcome. And so that's really important. We also become a lot more flexible in our beliefs. So we're less likely to become sort of hardened um, political right. warriors sort of you know trying to, to win on our side. And I think that we need more of that, right? So I think I, I have this Absolutely. thing and I tell groups I talk to, we need to be arguing more about politics and not less. We just need to do it in a, in a way that's respectful um, and, and engaging. But I think like, yeah, we shouldn't shy away from political differences. We should sort of seek out people who can challenge us a little bit. And, and yeah, sometimes we argue a little bit and it can make us uncomfortable, but ultimately like that's part of living in a democratic free society and, and we ought to uh, be striving for that. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is, um, as you said earlier, where we get our information. And I um, want to come back to that. Let's take a quick break, but then we'll come back and jump into a discussion about the media and uh, the election and maybe where uh, the polling industry is headed after 2020. Uh, you're listening to HPS Insights. We'll be right back. 
Every two weeks, HPS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The HPS Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. We're back on HPS Insights. My guest today is Dan Cox, and we're talking about the elections, conspiracy theories, uh, trust in the media. Uh, Dan, thanks again for being here today. Um, I want to pick up where we left off in that last second about media bias and and some of your findings with the conspiracy theory work showed that, that people are going out there and not trusting the media, so getting into the wild internet side of things and finding some of this stuff. But um, concerns about biased media is not new. And to me, the emergence of cable news in the last few decades have allowed viewers to sort of self-select where they get their news from. And that's only exploded since Fox News and MSNBC and others have, have come on. But for the most part, you know, I think journalists are individually trying to tell the the story and the facts they're finding. And really it's when we get to the opinion side of news that the Maddows or the Tucker Carlson's, et cetera. But uh, tell us what you're finding. Where, Where are people right now in terms of trust in the media and where they're getting their sources of information? Yeah, I... Perhaps not surprisingly, I have a, a, a lot of thoughts about this. You know, we work very closely with a lot of journalists, um, journalists who I respect immensely, who have a very difficult job, uh, you know, having to turn around things very quickly, working in an environment where the political news is uh, kind of unrelenting. But I do think, you know, there are a few problems. Uh, like as a society, I think we are constantly overvaluing elite opinion, whether it's the in the form of journalists on Twitter or influencer culture or politicians trying to create their own brands. I mean, the very idea that a, a news outlet, you know, pay people to share their opinions, this idea of opinion journalism seems kind of crazy to me, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a lot of friends uh, on the opinion pages with an attitude like that, but, you know, and, and these are very smart people, but it's, it's, um, you know, what but the it's true. The ones who make millions of dollars are not, chasing down sources in the halls of Congress or sitting in a White House briefing room. It's it's the 9 p.m., 10 p.m. kind of talk show slot that they get. Right. I mean, it's all it's anecdotal. It's impressionistic. It's filtered through an ideological lens for the most part. Um, And so so much of our our debate has become elites talking to other elites. And it's really divorced from the wider experiences of the the public. Uh, I think it would be awesome if a show had just like an average person coming on and just talking for 10 minutes about like what their life was like every week. That would be really cool. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of public opinion research strives to be and, and could be, right? Um, when so much of the media and political landscape has become persona driven, the kind of public facing fact driven research that we do is really kind of the antithesis of that. Yeah, and I'm curious too, I find that a lot of journalism has become persona driven on the other side of that as well, that that we chase um, politicians and others, not for their policies, 
but for their latest hot take on what Trump said on Twitter or what Nancy Pelosi said on a conference call. And that has become such a larger share of our news that we've gotten away from some of what you were talking about in the first segment, those policy discussions about different views. How much is that impacting our media environment as well? I mean, uh, yeah, immensely. I think if you look at Trump and, and a lot of Trump supporters, I think that a lot of supporters would have no idea where he stands on a whole variety of issues. Uh, and it's become about identity and you know what he stands for. And I think when we think about so much of, of the animating force in our politics now is about demographic change, right? That we are shifting rapidly. And, and you hear this a lot about sort of the racial and, and ethnic composition in the US, but it's religion too. It's religion is absolutely um, a core part of this. We're now a quarter of the country is, is, has no form of religion. The white Christian population, which used to be dominant, um, is now at, I think around 50%. And there's a, there's mm-hmm. a vibrant and growing um, uh, groups of non-Christian uh, communities in the, in the US that are becoming more um, uh, visible of course, culturally and politically. And, and so I think you know, sort of navigating that um, is, challenging for any society. And I think we haven't done it particularly well. And I think some of our political leaders have done a kind of a disservice to sort of helping us try to feel integrated and connected, um, but rather sort of use these sort of shifts as a way to sort of separate us into, into camps. Um, and this is happening both on the left and the right. Uh, and it's really unfortunate because it, it really creates an environment that it becomes difficult to want to work together. So not even that you know, we ha- can identify the, the, the same problems, whether it's climate change or uh, income inequality or whatever it is, but um, we, we dislike each other so much. This thing called affective polarization, where uh, it's not just, I disagree with you about issues, whether it's abortion or same-sex marriage, it's, I fundamentally don't like you because you're a Republican or a Democrat. And in a recent poll that we did, we found that the number of, of Democrats and Republicans who think that the other party is not only offering different ideas that think are wrong, but is a threat to the U.S. has increased dramatically over the last five years. Um, and again, some of this is about is about Trump um, sort of elevating right. threat level. But I think, you know, particularly when you look at um, and again, I think it's asymmetric here that that you see um, on the right where there's this kind of language that that they're that is being used sort of saying this is sort of the end of the world we've got to sort of fight back against democrats and liberals um whether it's on sort of religious freedom or or um free speech issues i think you do see the kind of apocalyptic language employed more um now increasingly you're actually seeing on the left too um but i think the history in sort of the 90s and 2000s um it was more on the right and you know as it becomes sort of more acceptable on the left too um, that really is going to take us to a place that is not good. Yeah, that's that's one of my biggest worries that um, we can put a lot of it at Trump's feet, but there's a responsibility of, of everybody. And, you know, there will be a time when Trump's not here and, you know, Biden and others may try to, to, to walk that back to be the president for all Americans. But if the rest of our political parties don't follow suit, um, I'm afraid the line's been moved so far that we'll never get back to to a civil conversation on it. There's some also some um, new research that in sort of 
informed some some of what we're saying here um, by Liliana Mason, uh, mm -hmm. where she looks at identity and sort of the convergence of identities. So at a time, there was a time when if I knew your political party, I wouldn't know much about any, any of your other your uh, personal attributes, your race, religion. Um, but now if I know your race and religion, I can predict pretty accurately your politics. Uh, and that, again, that didn't used to be the case, but now our, we have this alignment of racial identity and religious identity and political identity um, that makes it really difficult uh, and it creates like really high boundaries between the political groups um, that can be, make it difficult to sort of traverse them. Is this um, related to sort of the, the death of the independent voter? There, there's no such thing. I mean, we talked a lot this summer on some of our podcasts that there were no undecided voters. They, they may <laughs> tell a pollster they're undecided, but um, there, there was really such a small number where, you know, you think back to the 2000 elections or elections in the 90s, there were huge chunks of independent undecided voters that the two candidates would spend all summer and fall trying to move over into their camp. So this is where I think I stand apart from a lot of other pollsters um, and even some of the best, right? So uh, where you have people dividing uh, people sort of like there's the Republicans and there's like the independents who lean Republican and they generally, when it comes mm -hmm. to issues, look really similar. Um, and same thing with the independents who lean Democrat and, the, and sort of the true Democrats. Uh, yeah. And so like the Pew Research Center will group them together and other places will group them together. Uh, but I actually don't do that. And I don't do that because while the on questions of issues they yeah they, those two groups look pretty similarly the leaners and the sort of the, the true partisans uh but a whole other way range of things that they particularly behavior they are different right so in terms of their political engagement they have lower levels of political engagement they're less mm -hmm. likely to vote they have um lower levels of sort of civic engagement if you look at their social networks um true partisans are much more likely to be surrounded by other partisans of the same Strike. Uh, so they have much more homogeneous political networks. So they're surrounded. They have sort of more embedded in these kind of echo chambers than than leaners. And so for a number of reasons, uh, I kind of carve them out a little bit. But I, I, to okay. your point, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that um, there's not a lot of people who are undecided. You know, heading in down the home stretch of an election, uh, we're sort of becoming. Um, further apart on a whole range of issues. There used to be plenty of, of pro-life Democrats and there, there aren't anymore. Um, right. You know, there, the number of moderate Republicans I could probably, you know, count on one, one hand. Uh, and so I do think that this kind of, there's been kind of this ideological realignment, which is, has, I think, increased our, our political polarization. Um, and in one way made it kind of less difficult to vote, you know, I think there's somewhat less hand-wringing, even if we're not thrilled with our options, we kind of know where we sit. Uh, and the only reason I think you saw some significant amounts of um, kind of people sort of shrugging their shoulders and ambivalence in 2016 is that the number of people who disliked both candidates was at a record high. Right. Uh, that we didn't happen. About that a lot. Yeah, that didn't yeah. happen this year. So Biden was still viewed fairly favorably um, among the electorate, whereas Trump, you know, had I think like a forty percent approval rating or favorability rating. Yeah, and I'll forget the numbers, but but there was some statistic where if you disliked both candidates in twenty sixteen, which there was a big chunk, you're you're right. 
you tended to, to go vote for Trump. Um, I would probably attribute that to, to Clinton was much more known after having spent so many years of, of her life in, in public service where Biden won those voters significantly this, this time. Right, um, pool overall. Right. All of that kind of leads me to, to a final topic I wanted to cover, which is uh, given this polarization, um, given what you found in your research and what you've learned, where is the state of the polling industry today? Um, they, they were pretty criticized, probably rightly so after 16. Um, they were immediately criticized after the election this year, although I think as numbers continue to come in and be finalized, it looks like polling was generally right on, on the national numbers and just, just frankly had some big whiffs in states like Maine and uh, probably North Carolina, Michigan, Florida. Um, where are we? What what are pollsters? Well, let me ask it this way. Um, is there a difference between political polling and what you're doing and what do political pollsters need to learn coming out of this cycle? Yeah, I mean, like far be it from me as uh, I don't do a lot of horse race polling to sort of give lessons to the, the, the folks who do a lot of election. Sure. Uh, so a lot of our work is is just looking at, you know, behavior and attitudes on particular issues. Um, we do polls on like community life and family life and that kind of thing. And we, we touch on politics, you know, certainly. And right. we always find our, our way back there just because it's it's incredibly important. Um, but we don't we don't really get caught up in the sort of horse race polling and, you know, who's up, who's down. Um, but I will say that uh, it's sort of in some ways an, an an unfair measurement of the the use and the reliability of polls to sort of say, well, we we only can trust polls if they can predict the outcome of election. And there's no research methodology that is designed to predict human behavior. Um, if you could create one that could do that, you would be incredibly, incredibly wealthy because you right. could do, do right. like almost anything. Um, yeah. But it turns out that humans are really, really difficult to predict and, and understand their behavior. Um, so I think that there's the yardstick we're using to to assess the usefulness of polling um, is totally off base. So when you hear you know things about oh polling we can't trust polling anymore, um, what what these horse race polls are actually trying to do or what people are, are using them for, they're trying to predict a um, an act right. So how I'm going to vote the and then right, the, yeah. the subpopulation of adults in the U.S. who are going to be voting. Right, so there's two things that they're trying to do there, both of which are very difficult to do, um, and yet the polling actually, in some cases, is, is you know in, in certain circumstances under certain uh, uh, situations, they, it can be fairly accurate. Um, so you saw some some pretty accurate polls in places like Nevada. Um, I think Georgia was pretty accurate as well, um, and nationally, I think the numbers will be all right. But as you said, there were some some big whiffs, and one of the things I think that people are really kind of hung up on is that there was systematic bias in the polls um, in 2016 and 2020 in the same direction, right? Both of them right. overstated democratic uh, performance. And so I think that is something that there sort of needs to be a reassessment. And I have a piece coming out in 538 next week that tries to dig under a little bit of you know, what's going on. And basically the, the thesis I have is that 
there we're seeing an increasing number of people who are kind of socially and civically disconnected from society. And um, there's always been this group that's been kind of, yeah, sort of at the margins. Uh, but now their politics has shifted sharply um, rightward, uh, at least in the Trump era. We don't know like what will happen sort of in the post-Trump years, but these, right. these folks, um, particularly white Americans, but all, all, you know, all Americans um, were disproportionately supportive of Trump. And so I think a lot of the polling missed these folks because there's been a there's been a ton of research that suggests and miss them that, how like can't they wouldn't can't reach them or they wouldn't participate okay yeah these uh, folks are, are just disinclined to participate in in surveys again they're disinclined to do a lot of things right they're they're not connected to sort of civic and social organizations um in in our work they had um much smaller actually no sort of immediate people in their sort of core social networks right uh and so they look really different than a lot of folks and so is it a, uh, you know, going a little full circle here? Is it an institutional trust thing? They don't trust it's related to, or the cold call that they're getting and click. Yeah, it's absolutely related to that. And so, you know, in the past, these people were still around, but they weren't dividing their votes in the same way. And so the thing that to remember is like, if this group is, is biased in a particular direction, right? So that they're more pro-Trump, um, then I'm, and I'm trying to predict Trump vote. I'm going to be in trouble. But if, if for instance, I'm trying to, to look at the religious attendance or re religious identity um, right. in polls, and these folks don't look any different religiously, then, then I'm fine. And then the estimates are, are not going to be biased and, and we don't have a huge problem. Uh, and, and, and point of fact, like one of the big differences between the work that I do and some of the election polling is that we're not trying to, to predict a subset of the population who are voters, people who, who will be voting in this election which at best is like two thirds of the adult population. We're trying to get a sense of what people are doing right now, kind of get a snapshot um, snapshot in time of their behaviors, their attitudes, sort of their feelings and sort of say, this is what we found um, on this group of people we, we polled. And, and for a lot of that work, there's no indication that um, there's any major issues. Uh, yeah. Now we always wanna be kind of transparent and be kicking the tires on this stuff. Uh, but one question I have for anyone who's saying, saying we, we can't rely, we can't trust polling is what is the alternative? Are we going to rely on rally right. size? Is, right. it, is it political endorsements? Um, it's more about using polling for what it is. It's Twitter, Twitter followers, some, like, yeah, so what, are, what are we going to yeah. use that's going to be more reliable? And the answer is there is nothing. And, and so I think I mentioned this in this piece I published this week that, you know, we should be transparent uh, about the way we're doing things. And then reporters have responsibility too, to use other benchmarks and metrics and you know, sort of put things in context. And I, I tell this to, when I talk to student groups all the time, don't ever look at any poll by itself as, as sort of the arbiter of truth. And like, this is gonna tell you what's going on. You, you look at it in the context of everything else out there. Um, and in, in 2020, uh, the problem was that, you know, by and large, we were seeing the same systematic error across a number of different polls. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think we need to leave it there, but um, it's been a fascinating conversation and, and I hope to have you on again soon. Uh, before we go, can you preview anything for us? What, what other work do you guys have coming up at the Survey Center on American Life? Yeah, we have three projects, uh, or I guess maybe even four projects um, that I'm really excited about. We have a post-election poll coming out 
And that'll get at some of just what happened, but we're also looking ahead at COVID and trying to get a sense of where we are right now um, with this sort of huge spike nationally in, in infections. Um, so that'll be interesting. We're actually looking at the relationship between masculinity and vote choice and mask wearing and all these different kind of political and non-political behaviors. Sadly, a big issue, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And something that we looked around, there's not a lot of data. There's a lot of people talking about it and speculating right. about it, but not a lot of data um, out there. We're going to do a poll on technology and privacy. Uh, that'll be in 2021. Great. And then we have a big um, survey on sort of community life in the post in the COVID and post-COVID era, trying to get a sense of where we'll be. Um, and this will also be in 2021. Great. Well, I, I hope you'll come back and join us and talk about those when they, they come out. This has been a, a great conversation. So thanks for joining us. We'll have to have beers next time. Yes, yes. Always <laughs> Schedule <it> later <laughs> in the day. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of HPS Insights. Special thanks to our guest today, Dan Cox. Um, check out his work at AEI and the Survey Center on American Life. And you can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies work in our podcast at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insight. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis. As always, thanks for listening to HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.